as Jeff mentioned, we just, we just love family, family, the word family. We think it's a powerful word. Uh, but how many know that family is a, is a tricky word? It, there's a lot of emotion attached to the word family. And I, I actually like, I like, I like the term nuclear family. You know, when you, when you delve into sociology, there's a term called nuclear family. And, and, and the nuclear family is, you know, parent-child relationships, the, the family that lives in your home, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. That's, that's considered the nuclear family. I think it's really appropriately named because if you think about like a nuclear power plant, you know, it's one of the most efficient, um, powerful uh, energy source that, that humankind really has ever seen. Um, however, when, there's, when you lose containment, when there's a core meltdown, it's one of the most destructive forces that mankind has ever seen. And I think that really sums up family really quite well, doesn't it? Um, so I'm not naive to the fact that family can be painful and hurtful. And so when a guest speaker comes and, hey, we're going to talk about family today, um, that, that may raise a whole lot of emotion in this room because uh, I, I know that there can be the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to family. But what I refuse to let happen is that the culture of our past and the pain of the things that have affected us get to define our future. See, because, because we are connected in our spirit to, to the holy of holies. And in that place, there's hope. And God is a God of restoration. That's what he does. It's like his job description. And so we can, we can lean into that. And so I, I just exhort you this morning that no matter how painful it is to even go to this place, maybe even how painful it is for somebody to stand up here and talk about family, I ask you to lean into that because I, all week, everybody, I, I've just been, been living with this anticipation for this morning because um, God is doing something. <laughs> And he's a God of restoration. I just believe that this morning there's going to be just incredible breakthrough because we're going to connect to his heart. And, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, and that's the key is that we've connected to that. And I've already felt it this morning. It's like, it's like even just the, the prayer that we had this morning and the worship, it's like the power of God is here. And he's always here to do a work. Always. I mean, that's just, the, it's just the way he is, and he's so loving, and his goodness runs after us. And so th those are just truths that we can, that we can rely on. And so, so don't, don't go into the fetal position and say, this is about family. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, there's too much pain uh, because God is a God of restoration. I'm just going to keep saying it, <laughs> saying it into the atmosphere. God is a God of restoration. Why don't you say it? God is a God of restoration. That's just truth. And when we declare truth into the atmosphere, things change. Things shift. I, um, as we talk about family, let me just real quickly. Oops. Is this going to work? Oh, it did. This is my family. So my beloved wife, Amy. How many people were at our marriage course? Can I just see hands so I know my audience? Okay. Um, this is just wave, honey. This is my, my sweet wife and partner in ministry and partner in life and everything in between. <laughs> and so it's been a fun adventure that we've been going on for sure. Uh, these are our eight children. We have four with us now. Um, we have um, one who is married, uh, kind of cuddling up on the right-hand corner uh, with his new wife. Uh, they've been married for about a year and a half. And since we've been here last... We are going to be grandparents. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. <laughs> yes, we were, we were ready. We were so excited. Oh, my goodness. 
So, so we are we are all just beaming, just beaming. So this 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 is news. Um, we have one daughter in at Purdue, uh, finishing up graduate school there. We have um, one daughter who's at volleyball camp, and our son is working. So we have we have half of our children here today. Um, and then Amy's parents, Don, uh, Larry and Wilma, please wave, wave, your, wave your hand, please. Um, our parents have been traveling with us. My parents are Don and Heather, and uh, it's been it's been this generational ministry for sure. And uh, and they've been they've been the ones cheering us on, but also partners in ministry. And we're so grateful to you. And uh, so it's been it's been powerful. One of the most powerful things people say is just is just seeing a family ministering together, just the, just the generational power of that for sure. So that's our family. But family um, is interesting. You know, when we, when, we took it, when we look at the culture in which we live, one of my favorite words, we, we, we see the word family. And, and it's funny, when you're in ministry, it's like you see, you see these things all of the time. But how many have realized that the word family, especially now, is getting used everywhere? And, and there's, a, there's a, a somewhat of a sad reason for that. Um, you know, when something hurts... You know, we're, we're human beings. How many in the room are human beings? Yes, okay. So when, we're, when we are human beings, um, we, we tend to try to avoid pain, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's just, that's just who we are. And when, when something hurts and when something is painful, um, it's, it's human nature to try to, to change or, or manipulate the things that hurt us so that it doesn't hurt so bad. How many know that maybe in unprecedented ways, family today is being redefined? Well, there's a reason for that. And the reason that there's been redefinition of family is that if we change what family means, then maybe it won't hurt so much. If we dilute what it means, if we water it down so that everything is family, if we, if we water it down and dilute it, then maybe it won't be so painful. And, and so that when we see this happening in our society, we actually shouldn't be very surprised um, because it's human nature to try to, to try to change it or to make it less painful. So we see the word family in everything because people are trying to bring redefinition, pri- trying to bring dilution to the family. We, uh, is this going to work? Yeah. So, whoop. Hey, I'm click happy. Here we go. Just one click. So, so family has been used in advertising um, quite frequently, real, pretty much since advertising has begun. They throw the word family in there because it creates a context for us, kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? When you go to, <laughs> I only hit it once that time. <laughs> this might not work. So when you go to Olive Garden, their tagline is, when you're here, you're family. I don't know about you guys, though. Whenever my parents invite us over for dinner, they have actually never charged me for the food or, or required a tip or anything like that. See, it's, it's kind of ludicrous, isn't it, when you go to Olive Garden that your family. But they, but they throw that in there because they want you to have a feeling. Let me try this. Boom. Boom. This is, this is Kemp's. This is a Minnesota company, like one of the family. And so there's the cow on the selfie. And so Kemp's becomes ingrained in your family and apparently into your selfies as well. So this is, this is the one I love. So how many know that the NFL has taken a few public relation hits lately? <laughs> they've, had, they've had some problems, haven't they? And so they have started a campaign. This maybe started about 18 months ago, somewhere along the line, where they have these commercials. And it pops up at the end. Football is family. 
What does that mean? <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. In fact, their commercials have nothing to do with family. It has to do somewhat with you know, community service and some things. But they throw up football is family because they're hoping to change their image. And so they just simply throw the word out there because everything, apparently, is family. So this is, I've given this message. We have a dear friend named Kristen, and so she was driving down the road. She passed this truck. This is her picture of her phone as she rolled down the window in the winter and took a picture of this truck and sent it to me. So, <laughs> so, I, so I had to look it up online, and you'll be happy to know that Jack Daniels isn't just whiskey, it's a family. <laughs> Who knew, right? <laughs> See, um, but this last one, this last one happened just because Jesus loves me. He knew I needed this for this message. So you're going to think I'm kidding, but this is real. So this summer, get the sausage family together. So this is Johnsonville. So I went on their website as well and said, hmm, where are they heading with this? So this is right off of their website, okay? I'm going to read it to you. All right, at Johnsonville, we like to think a sausage is more than just a sausage. It's a bonding agent that makes friends, family, and even your Snoopy neighbor feel like part of your family. Share a Johnsonville brought with someone, and you're basically welcoming them to your sausage family. <laughs> well, summer is finally here, and it's the perfect time to fire up the grill, throw on some sizzling, delicious Johnsonville brats, and get the sausage family together. Because at Johnsonville, listen, we don't make sausage, we make family. And sausage. <laughs> you can't even really make it up, can you? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's something super funny about this, and there's also something a little sad about this. There, 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 there's a connection because people are so hungry for family. See, we are hardwired from the very beginning of time to actually desire and need family. And so the advertisements know that. <laughs> the marketers know that. But we're hardwired that way. And so we, um, if we're not careful, we hope that everything else will be family. Because family has, has hurt us. Because family hasn't lived up to its expectation. Maybe our Wednesday night bowling league family. <laughs> maybe our bingo family. Maybe, maybe they can meet a need that I have. And I, I know that sounds... Sad. Now, what about church family? Well, I think, you know, I think we are a family here at church because we all have the same papa, don't we? And so we are sons, we are sons and daughters and we are brothers and sisters. But I would even submit to you that the church family serves a different role than our family family. And I'm going to lay that out today. So God is a God of restoration, and I love the word restoration, and I love the word family. And so we need to... Pretty much with everything in life, we need to go back to what the Father's original heart was for it so that we know what it is. If we try to just roll with the culture and say everything is family, then it becomes diluted and it becomes redefined from what it was initially created to be. And how many in this room want your family to be what he created it to be? And so if you were at our marriage course, you know that we spend most of our teaching in the first two chapters of Genesis. And the reason is, is because we get a snapshot of what the Father's original heart for, was for family. It's the per perfect place to go because it was a picture of what he created for us before sin entered the world. And so when we talk about um, a restoration project, um, how many people have ever restored something? You, you, you creative 
people, talented people. <laughs> so think about like a restoration project, like you're restoring an old home or an old car or an old boat. There's two things that you need to know before you start the project. The first thing you need to know is its inherent value. If you restore something and it's no more valuable after you restored it than when you began, it's probably not worth the project, <laughs> right? The other thing that you need to know is what it originally looked like. So you would find an old photo or a picture so that you know what you're restoring towards. And so when we talk about family restoration, when we talk about the heart of the Father, we need to know its inherent value because if you don't think it's valuable, you will not pursue it. And then you need to know what it originally looked like so that we know what we're building for. We know what our goal is. Well, I'm happy to report that we find the inherent value of family in Genesis chapter 1, and we find what it originally looked like in Genesis chapter 2. <laughs> There's no coincidence in that. That's the way the Father created it to be because it's super, super important. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 1, the inherent value of family. Obviously, in Genesis chapter 1, we have creation week. And I'm just going to go through this real quick, but we know the story. Creation week are, is seven days of, of, of creation where the Lord spoke uh, into existence. The Bible has a sort of rhythm to it where he said he spoke it, it was, he saw that it was good, there was morning and night. And, and so we have this rhythm that goes through all of creation week. It's a powerful, beautiful thing. And I really believe that if you haven't read creation for a while, um, do that again because... <laughs> I'll be frank with you. I've read Genesis chapter 1 probably a hundred times without exaggeration. And every single time I get something else out of it because it's so rich with history and what the Father had for us. But, but read it with the, with the lens that it's a stage that he's creating. Because there's something that happens in the creation week that that's, I don't think anybody would really argue with. When day six comes around, there seems to be something special about it. Can we agree on that? I mean, there's things that were created. There were the stars, and there was the earth, and there was the water, and there were the trees, and all of these things were put into place, and it was like this stage, but when day six came, there was, like even, like the, there was even a break in the rhythm of Genesis where there's all of a sudden this heavenly conversation. And it says, let us make them in our image. And, and, they, and they had this conversation about what they would do and what they would make. And he made man and woman, and he put them in, into the earth, and... And he, he, he placed them into this paradise that was created in those first five days into day six. And he put them there, and he put them there as a loving father in relationship with them. And he set them into place. And, 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 and it says even in day six that he saw it, and he said it was very good. It was very good. There was something. It was like the crown jewel of his creation was man and woman that he placed into his environment, into the culture of Eden. And then I love this because it says that the almighty God, creator God guy, confronts his creation, right? Wouldn't you like to have a videotape of that? We don't have videotapes anymore, do we? <laughs> I just turned 50 last week, by the way. Yeah, so I'm just saying, thank you, <laughs> the big 5-0. So I can say things like videotapes. I can, I can get away with it, right, right? <laughs> Kids are like, what's a videotape? So <laughs> but wouldn't you like to see that? Wouldn't you like to see the moment when, when, when the almighty God, the creator of the universe, confronts his creation? And so he, he has them there, and he's confronted with them, and then he speaks to them. And he says to them, be fruitful, multiply. 
fill the earth and subdue it. And so entered family on the stage of world history. Family. See, family, he had an idea, and it was Genesis 128. And Genesis 128 um, is appropriately named the cultural mandate. I, lo I love that term. If you, if you actually study the Bible, if you're a Bible nerd, you'd study it. It'd be actually labeled the cultural mandate. And I think it's perfect because I love the word culture. But guess what? Every sociologist would agree. This is outside of the Bible. This is like secular sociologists would agree this statement. As family goes, so goes the culture. Yeah, I think we'd all agree with that. It, it, it was true now. It's true. It will be true in the future. It was true at the beginning, at the very, very beginning in, in the Garden of Eden. That this cultural mandate was released to family, the first husband and wife, the first family that was placed. And the mandate was... Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. See, see, family was given these marching orders, given their instructions right from the very beginning. And, and, the, and here's the crazy part. Have you ever considered that the Father created the world unsubdued? I don't know if you've ever contemplated that before. Why would he do that? Why would, why would he put Adam and Eve in there and then give them an instruction to actually go do something about it? He did it because he wanted us to play a part in his creation. Isn't he cool? <laughs> he's an incredible God. That's his heart. He's always been relational. That's the, way he's, that's the way he always rolls. And so he confronts his creation and said, I have given you a culture, a beautiful culture of Eden. I placed you in it. I created it for you. I put you in it. Now your job is to be fruitful, multiply, have a family, and reproduce the culture over the face of the earth. They, their children were responsible for actually reproducing what the Father created in Eden so that the rest of the world culturally would be like what the Father created at the beginning. Family was the integral part of that equation. Family was placed in the very middle of, of day six and given their instruction to go and make the rest of the world look like what I created for you here. Family's really important. Are you starting to get the picture? So there's a day shift that takes place. On day six, there's a shift that takes place where he speaks to them. He gives them. I also like to not only call it the cultural mandate, I like to call it the first great commission. I think it's the first great commission that was actually given to family. I think there was a second great commission that took place after Jesus rose from the dead and said, go into all the world, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, make disciples of all nations. I think that was the, the second great commission, and I think that was given to the church. I think that was the, the, the church's marching orders. But from the very beginning of time, there were marching orders, there were instructions, there was a mandate given to family. And it was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So family was the center point of the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate was the center point of day six, and I would argue with you that day six was the center point of all creation, of creation week. It was the highlight. It was the climax. It was, the, it was the, what everything was heading towards. Um, so how many in the room are Bible nerds? Just don't, don't be afraid. Just raise your hand. <laughs> so if you're a Bible nerd, you'll really like this, okay? So the book of Genesis itself is actually divided... Um, into 
uh, nine categories, nine sections, okay? And each section in the book of Genesis starts with, these are the generations of. And so if you ever want to just break apart the book of Genesis, there are nine sections. And so there are the, the generations of Adam, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And that forms the outline of the book of Genesis. It's crazy because this, this cultural mandate, if you really dig into it, is actually present in every section of Genesis. Why is that true? Because we know Genesis chapter 3 happens and, and mankind falls away from the perfect plan, but the cultural mandate never died. This is, if you get nothing else out of the message, get this. When the Father sets something into place, it's in place. No matter what we do, if we walk away from it, if we turn our back on it, we say, well, that was a bad idea, God, and, and we walk away from his perfect plan, guess what? It doesn't change the plan. He's God. And when he sets something into place, it's in place. And, and here's, here's the part. Please lean into this. Ready? Drum roll. <laughs> there is no plan B. God created something. He set us in it. It was his perfect environment and plan and culture that he created for us. And because we turned our back on it, it doesn't cancel his plan. See, he is a God of restoration. He's a God of restoration. And what mattered to him at the beginning matters to him now. And Jesus was the key to that. But when we lean into the whole book of Genesis, just for example, Noah gets off the boat. And what's the first thing God says to him? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? The Tower of Babel. Abraham, he said, he said, I will multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Therefore, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from your own body. Does that sound familiar? It's Genesis 1.28. It, God keeps quoting it because it has continued to be the mandate that would be present through family, through Abraham's bosom, Right? And, and I can give you more and more examples for the sake of time. Um, but, but here's the deal, is the cultural mandate was never canceled. Family was still the centerpiece and, and the most important, critical part of his creation. So it gets even bigger than that. So consider God's revelation to man, okay? When God reveals himself to us, okay, his revelation is progressive, and what I mean by that is what comes after doesn't cancel what comes before. It actually builds upon what comes before, right? So, for example, it would be, it would be foolishness to read the Old Testament and consider it final revelation. It would also be foolishness to read the New Testament and not consider the revelation that came before, right? It's the entirety of his revelation, one revelation built upon the next. And so in a lot of ways... It's like an inverted pyramid. And at the very beginning of this inverted pyramid is actually the very first revelation given to mankind, which was what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's the first thing spoken to mankind. And I would submit to you then, if that's true, that every subsequent revelation given to mankind after that was built upon the very first revelation given in Genesis 1.28. So how important is family? <laughs> how important is your family? Let me summarize. If you can read that, that says family. <laughs> family was the center point of the cultural mandate. 
Family was the heartbeat of day six. Family was critical to the whole, um, to the whole creation week. It was, it was the center point and the theme through the whole book of Genesis. And family was the center point of all of God's revelation to mankind. <laughs> so how important is your family? My goal this morning is to take the lid off of the importance and the value that your family carries. It's a, the inherent value. If you don't think your family is important, if you say, well, yeah, that's really great, Johnny. That's a really good word. But you don't know my family. If you don't know how important and how critical your family is to the, to, the, to the very nature and creative expression of God, then you won't pursue restoration. It is critical that you understand today where your family is positioned. Where your family is positioned. Sir, you were praying, you were praying this morning in our group here powerful, powerful. I felt the Holy Spirit so strongly. When you said the word now, <laughs> you, you were saying the things that the Lord offers us is available to us now. When you said that, I almost fell flat on my back. I mean, it was powerful because that is the word. I believe, I believe we have to get revelation of where we are today. And, and, and I, I almost feel like there's been 2,000 years of us trying to figure out, you know, who God is and who Jesus is. But it's like Jesus is, is switching things so that we understand who we are in him, seated in him in heavenly places. Like, we need to understand... Our family is critical to the heartbeat of God himself. So I hope you agree with me. <laughs> See, family has incredible inherent value. But in a restoration project, we also need to know what it originally looked like. What was the culture that the Father actually created for us in family? And, and I, I would love to have hours and hours where we could read all of these scriptures. But I've gone through Genesis chapter 2. And I have created a list of, I guess, the things, the cultural truths that you can find real easily just reading Genesis chapter 2. And again, if you haven't read that for a while, uh, read Genesis chapter 2 because it will blow your mind what the Father created for us, the stage that he set for us. It's It's beautiful. And so I have a list. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure if you read it, you could probably find other nuggets of truth as well. It's not all that clever of a list. They all don't start with the letter P or something like that. <laughs> this, this is simple. These are simple cultural aspects that you can just simply read the text and you can find out what the Father created for us. So Genesis chapter 2 can sometimes be confusing because it's hard to know how it melds with Genesis chapter 1 and creation week. My understanding of Genesis chapter 2 is that it's sort of a blow-up of day six of creation and beyond. So, you know, it says in day six in Genesis chapter one that they created the male and female. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter two, they talk about making the, the creation of Eve and different things that happened. So it's kind of a blow up of what happened in day six and beyond. We don't know how long Genesis chapter two lasts. I feel like not long enough. <laughs> it was such an amazing, amazing place. So let me just go through these real quick with you of what I consider to be foundational truths of the culture of Eden. The culture of Eden. So first of all, the first culture is that it was a culture of life. In verse 7, it says that they were created there, they were placed there. 
I, I believe it wasn't only a place to grow and thrive. Clearly, the culture of Eden was a place where Adam and Eve could thrive. It was not only that, um, but it was a place that the Father breathed life into them, that they were, they were encouraged and they were strengthened. Interestingly, there apparently was a tree there that they could eat and live forever. So as a physician, I don't know what was in that fruit, <laughs> whether it was some crazy antioxidant something or another. Um, I, I don't honestly know. But, but the Bible said that they could eat of the fruit and they would live forever. And so it was a place of life, like, and they were intended to not die. It was a place of boundaries. How many know that when you read Genesis chapter 2, there are actually boundaries that Adam and Eve were given as they had dominion um, in the garden. In fact, when you read Genesis chapter 2, it'll talk about the riverheads. You know, the, the, the Garden of Eden actually had boundaries. And, he, and here's the truth I really want you to get in this. Amy and I love talking about boundaries. In fact, our parenting message, we talk a lot about boundaries because boundaries are beautiful. They're wonderful. How many know that Adam and Eve were not responsible for the whole world? Everybody say, whew. <laughs> Which means... You are not responsible for the whole world. You are responsible for what the Father gives you, where the Father places you, the, the culture and the environment that he puts you in. You are responsible for stewarding that spot. And he gives each of us boundaries. And I, and I really honestly believe that it's a tactic of the enemy is to try to blow up boundaries so that we live outside of boundaries. Pastors, I tell pastors this all the time. Boundaries are so critically important to your marriage, to your family, because you are not responsible for the whole world. <laughs> Say it. I am not responsible for the whole world. It's really an important revelation. I'm being silly, but it's, it's important because, because the enemy can tell us that. And so he gives us living outside of boundaries. And so even in raising our children, the, the culture, the secular culture today is saying, don't put boundaries around your children. Well, guess what? They love boundaries because otherwise they feel the weight and the pressure of something that's not theirs to carry. And so it's a loving place. It's, a, it's what a parent did for us in Genesis chapter 2. A loving father put boundaries around us knowing that we, can't, we couldn't shoulder everything. Um, but Adam and Eve were given specific instructions of what was theirs and what wasn't theirs. It was a place of provision. A place of provision. A lot of times, you know, all over the country from the pulpit on Sunday morning, there are even um, preachers who would preach that God is a God of just enough. All I can say is they haven't read Genesis chapter 2 very much. <laughs> what, what he created for them was extravagant. Extravagant. It said it had jewels, and it said it had good gold. I don't know what that means. I don't know what's, what's better than gold. Apparently there was some, <laughs> some super gold <laughs> that they had there. They had everything that they needed. I don't think any of us would argue that Adam and Eve and the culture that they were created into, um, they were in want of nothing. Can we agree on that? They were in want of nothing. They, it was an extravagant place. He's an extravagant father that actually created something for us in an environment and a culture in which we were to thrive. That we were to thrive. It was a place of authority. Sometimes we don't know exactly what always to do with those kind of words in the kingdom, but it was a place of authority. The, God actually created um, a positions and purposes for his creation. In fact, they, Adam and Eve were given dominion, right? 
It says, you have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over everything that moves. You have dominion. And so they were actually given authority and dominion on the earth. They were also subject to the word of the Lord and the things that he would say to them. And so authority uh, and dominion was a cultural truth in the garden. It was a place of truth. If you, if you spend five minutes with my wife, you'll realize that this is one of her favorite words. Um, truth is so, so critically important, and, and I have a whole message on truth that I will try not to do right now. <laughs> but in summary, truth is a person. How many know that Jesus was there at the beginning? In the beginning was the word, right? It's hard to get our human minds around all of this, but his, his spirit, his culture, he, I, I believe he was the tree of life. I just, I just believe that he was there and his presence was the sustaining power. Um, but he, truth is defined in a person. He said that, I am the truth, right? And, and, and truth is actually a dominion, a dominion, a reality in which we live. It's the absoluteness of his word. And so when the Father came and he spoke to his people, even just this cultural mandate, like I just said, when it was spoken into existence, it was absolute. And what was the first thing that Satan said to them? Did he really say? He questioned the truth, the authority, the absoluteness of the Father's word. And guess what? Satan's tactics have never changed. <laughs> it's still what he does. Did he really say that? Does does he really know who you are? <laughs> and he, he, begins to, he begins to confront you at the realm of truth. So truth is a dominion. It's a beautiful place. It's a powerful word, much more than I can get into this morning. But it was an essential culture of his, of his um, kingdom that he created in Eden. Um, purpose. You actually mentioned, Jeff, purpose this morning, too. Um, purpose is one of my favorite words because I'm a type A personality guy. And I don't know if anybody else is like me, but the thought of, like, going to heaven and sitting on a cloud with, like, a little harp, does anybody think that sounds, like, super boring? <laughs> well, I have good news for you. I don't think heaven's going to be like that at all. I, th I think the Father actually wired us to, to live with purpose. He actually created in us and hardwired in us the desire to, to do things for his kingdom. And so we don't ever have to feel bad about that. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's that activity place where, where he puts us. Adam and Eve were to till and to tend the garden. That was theirs. They were given authority. They were given dominion. It's interesting. I'll try not to go on too many tangents, but it's interesting. The word dominion actually means to interchange with those you have authority over so that you can know them better. I think it's kind of cool. So dominion's a bigger word than just I'm... I'm the boss and you're my subject. It's bigger than that. It's, about, it's actually about relationship and interchanging. And I, in, if you read Genesis chapter 2, Adam was actually given the job of naming the animals. What a trip that would be. <laughs> See, I, this, is just an, uh, this is an aside to the aside. <laughs> I'm way over here now. But I, I think the animals probably talked. Probably. They probably did because the serpent walked up to them and started chatting with them. And they didn't seem freaked out by that, right? <laughs> And so it's most likely that there was some interchange that happened. And so Adam would actually, one of his purposes in life was to actually say, hey, Mr. Giraffe, why did the Father create you? And then he named them based on their name, based, based on their purpose in their life. And it's, it's a, it was a powerful position. So Adam and Eve were given purpose, and it was central to the culture. 
covenant, <laughs> covenant was started in the garden. Um, if you've met my parents, um, their life message is all about covenant. My mom has a book back on our table um, called Stepping Stones, God's Covenant Plan Through the Ages. And, and, it, and it's, covenant is something that she would say actually started before the garden in the, in the triunity, that they actually operated themselves in covenant. And they reproduced their culture on the earth and actually planted covenant. And it was demonstrated in the first marriage that took place, the marriage covenant, and, and the covenant between the father and his children. And so covenant is a powerful word. It's a, it's a two-week course <laughs> to really delve into covenant. It's such a powerful word. Um, but covenant, um, that every family would be blessed in covenant, was actually in the very foundation in Genesis chapter 2. And the last culture is freedom. They were naked, and they were unashamed. I don't think that they were just unashamed about being naked. <laughs> I think that they were naked, and they lived in a culture of being unashamed. See, shame entered into our culture because of sin. And it was the first sinister plan of the enemy. Shame is actually what hid us from the Father. And, and I think this is so critical just theologically. So just hear me in this. It is so critical to know that when we sinned, the Father did not turn his back on us. Again, sometimes this is preached from the pulpit, that God was so mad at us that he rejected us. But let's be super clear. When we sinned, we hid from him. And his goodness has been running after us ever since. That is theology right there. That, it is a critical theology because if we, if we sit here thinking that God is an angry God with his arms crossed and his scowl on his face, it's a completely different theology than he's a loving father who never stopped pursuing us. It's critical. And so they operated in complete freedom because they were in total relationship with the Father. And that is the key point. All of these things are great. And how many in this room would want this culture for your family? <laughs> I think I'm going to get 100% on that one. We all would want this culture for our family. But the key point, the critical aspect, the whole reason this existed was because of relationship and presence. This might blow your mind, and if you've never heard this before, this will change your life. The Father created us because he wanted to hang out with us. The Father created you because he wanted to hang out with you. He loves you so much. He, everything that he created for us, everything that he did, all of creation week, the beauty of his creation, the extravagance of his creation, the whole purpose was is because he wanted to be with us. He's a loving, compassionate, relational God. And everything, every motive that he has is about him knowing us and us being known by him. It's, 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 the, it's the goal. It's the everything, every cultural truth that we can ever find, everything that we can teach about from the pulpit, it all comes back to relationship with the Father. Everything that we do, everything that we do is to lead us into encounter. 
Everything. Why do we have a Bible? Is it to teach us the rights and the wrongs and the yeses and the noes and the lefts and the rights? I mean, there's some things that are in there that help us live life, but the purpose of Scripture isn't to tell us what to do. It's to tell us who he is. It's to draw us into encounter. When we worship, what is the purpose of worship? Is it just that we lock elbows and sing kumbaya and we have these Sunday mornings together? Doesn't that feel good? No, the purpose is, is to draw us into an encounter with an almighty God that created us because, of, because he loves us so stinking much and just wants to be with us. He just loves to hang out with us. And that's the whole point of this. That's the whole purpose of creation. The whole reason that he put family at the very center of the heart of it is that we would operate and, 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 and end and be in his presence. When you guys leave today, where did it go? There it is. We actually printed out these cards and you can grab one from the table. Just, just grab one when you walk out. Put it on your refrigerator. <laughs> Stick it on your mirror in your bathroom. Um, because it's just culture. It's the culture. And if somebody asks you, what, that's all, what is this all about? You tell them, this is what my daddy created for me. My daddy did this for me. This was his heart. This is where, this is where he wanted me to live. And it's just a reminder to put in front of your eyes. So grab one of those when you leave. And... This, my friends, is supposed to be the end of the story. This is a story of creation, of a loving God who placed, who placed the crown jewels of his creation into the environment, into Eden. And this was supposed to be the end. They were, remember it says they, you know, he walked with them in the cool of the day. We read these verses and it should blow our mind. I mean, Adam and Eve like, just communed with him. I mean, that was the part of their normal culture. And that was supposed to be it. We weren't supposed to need a Bible. We were just supposed to live in his presence. We were just supposed to be ushered in. And that, that, that culture was supposed to be reproduced by their family. And so it's beautiful. It's this beautiful place, this beautiful environment that he created. So just repeat after me. I was created because my father loves to hang out with me. <laughs> my family is important and was created with destiny. My family is plan A, <laughs> and there is no plan B. <laughs> My father's original heart matters. And my God is a God of restoration. This is where the story gets exciting. You may say, well, you know, Genesis chapter 3 happens. That's not very exciting. <laughs> no, it isn't. Um, because really what happened is, is that we hid ourselves from the very presence and relationship of God. Because of shame and the lies and the deception of the enemy, we figured that God didn't want to hang out with us anymore. We were too ashamed, and so we hid ourselves. And, and, and throughout history, we, we turned ourselves um, um, and, and, and refused to enter into the culture of Eden that he created for us. And, and there, was, there was separation. And so what we would expect to happen when we were separated from that perfect culture, the perfect place that he placed us into, where we were to thrive and to grow and to live and to have purpose, when we were separated from that, we would expect to see that the culture of the earth would look different right? So let's go through these really fast. So what would it look like when we are separated? We would enter into a culture of death. 
And how many know with, when we talk about abortion and we talk about these, these things about life, the value for life, even the teaching of evolution, which is a lifeless teaching, a, li a lifeless theory. It's not even really a teaching. It's just sort of a, something made up. <laughs> when we talk about that, it's, it's a culture of death. It's, it's, it's conveying to our children that your life has no purpose. <laughs> you were created by accident. And so we live in a, in a, a culture of death. It's a culture of anxiety. I mentioned that I'm a physician, and I, and I don't say this with, with any disrespect at all, but probably 80% of what I do in my practice is reassurance. We, we, we live in a society of anxiety. And the reason is, is because people are living outside of boundaries. When you live outside of a boundary, it causes anxiety because you don't know what's yours. You don't know what's not yours. We don't know if we're loved. We don't know if we're cared for. We don't, we don't have a father. When we're separated from a father, a father gives us that security. It gives us that security. I don't know where that young man who was praying this morning, but he was talking about the spirit of fatherlessness. Are you in this room? It doesn't matter. But he was talking about the spirit of fatherlessness and, and just the sinister nature of fatherlessness because a father actually gives security and boundaries to his children. Oh, he just walked in. I was just talking about you. <laughs> I think it's such a key word. Fatherlessness is such a sinister plan of the enemy. So thank you for releasing that because I think things are shifting in that regard. Um, so when we live outside of boundaries, it produces anxiety. Instead of provision, we operate in a culture of lack. Instead of authority and dominion, there's lawlessness and rebellion. You just turn the news on at night, and what do you hear? Lawlessness and rebellion. That's what's happening over the face of the earth. Instead of truth, there's counterfeit. How many know that, that, that the enemy is not the equal and opposite of God? Okay? Hear me in this. He, he is not a creator. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere present. He's a created being like you and me. Um, and so all he can do is bring counterfeit to the truth. He doesn't have an alternate truth. <laughs> that makes sense? It's not an alternate reality that he offers us. He only tries to separate us from the ultimate truth that was given to us in the garden. He tries to have us doubt the absoluteness of his word. That's his strategy. He's a one-trick pony. That's all he's got. <laughs> it's all he's got. Instead of purpose, we operate in burden. I don't know how many in this room have ever had the experience like I have, but when you start doing things outside of what you were called to do, <laughs> how many people have just done things that were good, <laughs> and you became really busy, <laughs> and you began doing things that the Lord didn't tell you to do, and quickly it becomes heavy lifting. <laughs> it becomes burdensome. It's, it's the square peg in a round hole thing. <laughs> and so we need to be connected to his voice in relationship so that we hear what he is telling us to do, what is ours and what is not ours. Instead of covenant, my parents would teach that covenant in a nutshell is all that I have is yours, all that you have is mine. That's covenant. It's covenant in marriage. It's covenant with God. It's covenant in family and relationships. So when we are separated from covenant, it all becomes about me, <laughs> about self. Self is the enemy to covenant. How many think that we live in a self driven society today and instead of freedom we operate in bondage and these are this is the culture that we would expect to see when we are separated from a father and so i would submit to you that when we see 
things on the news, when we, when we see things about bondage and about burden and about lack and anxiety and these things overwhelm us and consume us, I would tell you that they aren't the problem. They are the symptoms. They are the symptoms. They are a symptom of a culture separated from a father. But here's the really good news. I'll get off of this slide really quick because that's really depressing. <laughs> here's the really good news. Is that we, as the body of Christ, we live in a different culture. We've been ushered into a different culture and have a different truth and a different reality. And the reason is Jesus. <laughs> See, Jesus was the family restoration project. See, I, I would submit to you, and I think this is critical, that Jesus didn't only come on a salvation mission, although that's super important, and we should celebrate that every day of our life, that we are saved, that he covered our sins, that we live an everlasting life with him. That should be celebrated for sure. But he not only came on a salvation mission, he came on a restoration mission. And my heart, what I'm thankful for, it's Thanksgiving on Thursday, what I'm thankful for is this and everything that was paid by it. I want every single drop of blood that was shed to be, to be something that we harness and we receive fully. So we take communion this morning. It's his body and it's his blood. And, and he was saying that unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you have no part of me. What was he talking about? He was, he was talking about, about returning to the culture of Eden. See, in Eden there was something that they could consume that they would live forever. See, I believe Jesus was referencing the tree of life. It was one of those messages that bombed, didn't it? I mean, Jesus, some of Jesus' messages just bombed. There were people all around him, and he said, Hey, everybody, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you have no part of me. And they're like, What? And then people started leaving. And the disciples were like, What did you say? Why would you say that? That's what he said to them. Why would you say that? That's like super hard to hear. I mean, you were doing so good with the healings, and then you came along with this. And everybody left, <laughs> right? I mean, it just absolutely bombed. And, and he said, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you have no part of me. And what he was saying is, I am the tree of life. I am offering you the culture of Eden back again, where you eat of me and you live forever. <laughs> Do you understand? Jesus, Jesus, you know what the Bible, <sighs> getting excited now. You know what the Bible set, does not say? The Bible doesn't say that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If you read it closer, it says that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. <laughs> That's a big difference, isn't it? He came to seek and save that which was lost. Why? Because the Father's heart mattered. What the Father, he, the Father sent his Son to come and bring his kids back and to bring them back into an environment and a culture of Eden. And family would be the centerpiece of the heart. Nothing's ever changed except that Jesus came and shed his blood to make it all possible again. It's the times of restoration. Jesus came to usher us into a time where we once again could walk with them in the cool of the day. <laughs> this is where things get really exciting. <laughs> this is what Jesus afforded to us. This is what he afforded to us. And yes, Enmity entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, but Jesus said, I have overcome the enmity. Every, everything, every culture that was canceled by the enemy, everything that separated us from the perfect, per, perfect place that the Father created for us is once again afforded to us through the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to prove it to you. All right? So Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 3. 
I'm doing okay on time. <laughs> I could talk about this for days. It's the Vikings bye week. We have time, right? <laughs> so we're good. Hey, thank you for inviting us on the bye week. We should make a habit of that. All right, I am going to read this, okay? We skipped through Genesis 1 and 2 pretty quick, but we are going to read this. Okay, so Acts chapter 3, we're starting in verse 11. This is the story of, you know, Peter and John went to pray. They met a layman on the way. Sing along. He held out his palms and asked for some alms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Okay, so it's that story. This is the story. Really? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> no extra charge for that. So, <laughs> so, so this is the story. So Peter and John, they meet this guy. Everybody knows him. He's been lame since birth. He's been sitting on these steps begging forever. Um, Peter and John walk by, and they say, hey, do you have some money for me? And he says, no. They say, no, but I do have something that you might be interested in. <laughs> I have the power of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. So this guy gets completely restored restored, I like that word, he gets completely restored, right, and he goes ballistic. The Bible said he creates such a scene, as would any of us, right? He creates such a scene that he's completely healed that a crowd gathers in the portico of Solomon. A crowd gathers, and Peter stands up to address them. Now, Peter doesn't have a smartphone, right? This wasn't a prepared thing. He didn't know he was going to do this. This was a message, I believe, one of the most important New Testament messages of all time that Peter delivers through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And we're going to read what he says, okay? Now, what is critical to this story is the context, okay? Because if you lose the context, you can lose what the story is really about. So they said that this man who was healed, right, going crazy, Peter begins to talk, and this guy snuggles up with them and holds on to them. It says Peter delivers this message while this man grabs him, okay? So... This is the context. So picture me delivering this message with this guy who was just radically healed holding on to me and going, oh, I'm healed. Okay, so this, this is the scene, okay? You have to get the scene. This isn't like this, you know, whitewashed message on Sunday morning kind of deal. This is like spontaneous craziness that's going on here, okay? Now, as the lame man who was healed, verse 11, held on to Peter and John, okay? All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. I love this. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently as, at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Kind of a tough love message to begin. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> and in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Okay, this dude, like hanging right here, right? Whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Guess what the interpretation of the word perfect soundness is in Hebrew? Restoration. He's given him this perfect restoration in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled 
past tense. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since when? Since the world began. <laughs> for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, capital P, like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, now get this, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, a lot going on here, right? Okay, so, so he is saying, first of all, because we live on this side of the cross, the fact that this dude who you know who's been lame forever is completely restored shouldn't even shock you. That's what he's saying. It's, it's, a, it's an obvious and expected manifestation of the blood of Jesus in our lives. And he was saying that there should be three manifestations of where we live now. Three manifestations. The first is healing. We should expect to see healing. This guy ought to be restored because Jesus came in with restoration, with restoration in his blood. The second thing that we should expect to see is refreshment in his presence. Guess what, my friends? Prior to the cross, there was a veil. The veil had been rent in two. We weren't afforded presence into the Holy of Holies except for a select few. After the veil was rent, guess what? We have, we have absolute access into the throne room of God where we walk with him once again in his presence. So because of Jesus, we should expect healing. We should expect refreshment in his presence. And the third thing that we should expect is that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, why did he throw that in there? Why is that significant? Because Peter is saying that we live in a culture of restoration where we should expect to see the heart of the Father manifested in the culture in which we live. And the center of his culture and his heart was family. And so the manifestation of living under the blood of Jesus would be that your family would be blessed. Why? Because it's critical. It's critical to his heart. It's critical to his plan. And we live in the times of restoration of all things. See, so many people can take Acts chapter 3 and say, well, that's for the second coming. It's almost impossible to make that conclusion based on what he's saying. All of the prophets were talking about you guys, the people that were present during that healing. They were all talking about you because you're living in the time of restoration. And we should expect to see these crazy things happen. So what does this mean for your family? It means that you should expect crazy things to happen. <laughs> you should expect that the families of the earth would be blessed. It's, it's actually what Jesus paid for on the cross. And it was critically essential to his heart. Your family is incredibly important. 
Your, your family was placed into an environment that was critical and essential for the culture. And your family is to be fruitful, multiply. You are to fill the earth and subdue it. You, you are to bring influence and culture over the face of the earth through your family and your children. That was the mandate that was given to Adam and Eve, and it's your mandate today. Because Jesus brought restoration to every heart and to every family. It's super powerful. Let me, let me just close with this, because Romans chapter 8 has everything. It has everything. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? That would be us. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Who are the children of God? <laughs> that would be us. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until our magic word of the day, now. <laughs> until now. See, we live in the most incredible time in history. And the only thing that's missing is our understanding of who we are. Our identity in him and what we were created to be through him. The Bible says in Ephesians that we are seated in him in heavenly places. Well, that sounds like super poetic. No, it's not poetic. It's the reality in which we live today. We are spirit, and we are in him in heavenly places. What Jesus has purchased for us is ours and ours completely. Jesus came to bring restoration to the heart of the Father. You may look at this and say, that's not possible. What on earth? That's, that sound, that's, that's pie in the sky. I am telling you that Jesus paid for it. He paid for it. He paid for it in his blood because he wanted the Father's children to be placed back into the culture that he created from the beginning of time. And that is yours. And so God is a God of restoration. And my friends, I'm telling you that he is on a family movement right now. There are things that are happening. There are things that are moving. And, and as he brings healing and life and wholeness to your family, we want testimonies. <laughs> GoFam.org. Go on there. Because there are testimonies that are happening of, of radical changes in family and marriages. Things shifting. Because it's what he's doing right now because it's critical to the culture. Your family is critical to the culture. Your family is critical to what this world needs. And, and that may mean for a lot of us that your family needs to get healed. See, let me just share this with you. I, I think um, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, it was in my lifetime, I believe, that we didn't know what to do with healing so much. <laughs> and in fact, you know, we didn't know if we were supposed to pray for people for healing. Because we're like, well, gee whiz, you know, maybe, maybe it's God doing it to me. Maybe God made me, gave me cancer because he wants me to be more like him and to suffer with him. And we had, our theology was all swirled around. We didn't know quite what to think. Is God really good? Or is he kind of a punitive father that wants to hurt us, to teach us a lesson? And so we kind of did a lot of the aw shucks prayers. You know, if it's your will, God, you know, then be healed. And so we, we did a lot of that. And then 
there was a revelation of truth about God and his nature and that his goodness is running after us. Always, always. It's his nature. He can't give us something that he doesn't have. He doesn't have sickness and disease and mental illness. He doesn't have those things to give us. That, that's the enemy inflicting us to try to keep us separated from his presence. God is good, and he's good all the time. And what happened with that is that we began to start praying with more authority. We started saying, no, this cancer is actually an a, a, um, infliction of the enemy. And so we started to pray with some more authority. And guess what started happening? People started getting healed <laughs> because we entered into the realm of truth about who he is and his nature. And we began to pray with more authority and with power. And things began to shift in the culture. Well, and, and so now we can, we can just walk in the truth. We can, we can boldly go up to somebody and say, no, this sickness that's in your body is not of God. Be healed in Jesus' name. And we operate in a different mentality. I believe with family that we're just in the infancy of the same thing that happened about 30 years ago. Because, because of what it says in Acts chapter 3, that our family he, being healed is a manifestation of the spirit of his blood, just like my elbow got healed, just like my back got healed. Like, we should expect to see that our families would be blessed. But we do kind of the same thing. We're like, oh, shucks, you know, you don't know about my family. Like, like we put the dysfunction into dysfunction, you know. Our family's messed up, and I made mistakes. And, and because of that, I'm getting what I deserve. Ugh. Well, who told you that? I know who told you that, and it wasn't God. <laughs> it wasn't God. And so I'm saying we're, 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 on, we're on the precipice of, a, I believe, a shift in the way that we think, the way, the way that we understand the nature of God. And his heart was to have us live there. Our heart is to have us, our family saturated by his presence where we walk with him in the cool of the day and that we operate in his perfect culture of Eden. That's his heart for us. And so we need to, and, I, and believe me, I, I, I am so stirred up by this and have such boldness about this that I know that when we, when we seek restoration for our family, he will deliver. He is a God of restoration, remember? You guys all might be sitting there and like, yeah, I don't know about that. He's a God of restoration. And I could call out and say, I think the Lord wants to heal back pain. And we would boldly come up and get prayed for back pain. And we would testify and say, my back is healed. But the same is true for family. The same is true for relationships. There is a spirit of division that the enemy brings to try to divide relationships. Why does the, family, why does the enemy even care about our family? Because he knows, he knows how stinking important it is. He knows how critical to our society. So that's been his sinister plan from the very beginning is to separate marriages, separate relationships, separate parents from their children, to bring a spirit of division over the face of the earth. Because if he can, if he can remove and, and dilute and redefine the things that family was created to be from the beginning, then he has a victory on this earth. And I refuse to let that happen. I believe that things are shifting, and it starts with your family. It starts with your family. It starts with your willingness to say, you know what? It's time for healing. And I'm not naive. I know that's a big ask because there can be pain and there can be hurt in family. I know it. It can happen. But he's a God of restoration. He's a God of life. And that's his heart for each and every one of you today. I've been feeling it all week. <laughs> Things are going to shift. So that's my question for you this morning. Who in this room needs healing? in a family relationship. Who is it? 
then just come on up forward. <laughs> come up forward, seriously, just line up here. If you need healing in family, healing in a family relationship, I want you standing up here on behalf of your family. I, I, I'm preaching this with boldness because I know the heart of the Father for you. I know the heart of the Father for your family, and it's complete and total restoration. It's what he's doing right now, guys. It's what he's doing. He's powerful and he's good. He's powerful and he's good. <laughs>